Well, praise the Lord. It's so good to be here this morning. And, um, you know, it's, it's just, it's a joy and an honor to, to be able to share every week. I have the opportunity to share in a different church um, around the country, really. Um, we're mostly uh, itinerating or raising support in the state of Kentucky, but um, in the last few weeks, I've been as far as New Jersey and uh, Pennsylvania and Maryland and now Virginia, so it's just, it's just a real blessing. Um, I want to honor uh, two very special people here this morning, uh, three very special people, my parents, uh, Daniel and Stephanie Tremontosi, and my Aunt Gloria. There they are right there. And... Uh, <laughs> In so many more ways than one, I would not be here today or the man that I am today without my parents. And I am so grateful for the role that they have played and continue to play in my life. Um, I'm very blessed. Um, also, I just, my, my family gives greetings. I don't always get to travel with my family. So that's why I love to share that video so that you get a little bit of a sense of, of who my family is and what we're going to be doing and so today I have a message that I want to share with you related to missions, and it's going to be involved with connecting worship with the gospel call. And so it's a missions message, but it's going to be a little bit of a different twist perhaps than maybe you've, you've heard before. But I, I am very glad to hear that, that we're in a missions atmosphere this time of the year. Last week was uh, your missions weekend. And I also heard that you guys in January, I believe, are starting this perspectives course. And I tell you, for me, that course played a pivotal role in helping me to understand the broad scope of missions and the opportunities that are available to believers in serving the Lord in the, compa in the capacity of missions. So, this morning as I share with you, I have a specific verse that for many of us, it's been our go-to verse for worship, and we've heard it, and we perhaps have memorized the Scripture, and so I'm going to pull that verse out, but I want to address it with a little bit more of a broader sweep as we get going. Uh, so here, Romans chapter 12, verse 1, therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. This is your spiritual act of worship. Now, this verse has been, like I said, we often think of it in regards to worship. But as, you know, we learned, as Mark had mentioned, I've very fond of Virginia Beach. I've spent many years here. I've done my Master's of Divinity and my PhD. So not only have I lived here um, for long term, but I've also done a lot of commuting back and forth. And one of the principal things we learn in the study of Scripture as you get into hermeneutics and interpretation is you've got to avoid the tendency of proof texting. You can't just take a Scripture and pull it out and begin to preach a message on that without any awareness of the context from which it was pulled. So let's not do injustice to our worship verse this morning 
But let's take a look at it in context. And I believe when we do so, we will recognize an amazing connection between worship and missions. Amen? Amen. All right. So what I'm going to do is uh, I'm going to be doing a broad sweep through the book of Romans in just a few minutes. Now, understand this is a broad sweep. Romans is one of the most complex books in the New Testament, loaded with incredible theology. But I'm trying to emphasize a main strain, a main theme that runs through the book of Romans. So, throughout the book, we see that there is essentially a single problem that the Apostle Paul is dealing with. And it's the problem of sin upon the human race. Romans talks about from the very beginning that we are plagued with this disease of sin that we cannot overcome. And so all through chapter, uh, chapter 1 and 2 of Romans, Paul builds this problem up. And then he talks about our need to overcome it because by sin we are separated from God. We are unable to gain access to the Father because of this problem. And then Paul goes on to explain how we can overcome this problem. And so as we sweep through the book of Romans, we see as we get up to chapter 3, like I said, Paul talks about the impossibility of righteousness. And righteousness he's speaking of as the solution, how we overcome our problem. And he talks in chapter 3 that there is one way for the human being to overcome this problem of sin, and that is faith in Jesus Christ. It is only by faith in Christ. And then he goes on in the next few chapters to, com to contrast this idea of faith in Christ with a form of salvation or a form of righteousness by law, or in other words, by observance of those, those rules and regulations that have been laid out for us. And so, Paul begins to emphasize that it's only by faith in Christ. This is our only hope. This is our only solution. And he goes on and on, and he talks, and he establishes how when we commit our lives to Christ, that we have got to live as though we're only living for him. And he says in chapter 6, verse 11, it's such, such a, 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 an intense analogy of giving ourselves to Christ, he says it in these words, that we ought to count ourselves as dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Other translation says to reckon yourself as dead to sin. But you know, that, that brings up, that begs the question, how does this happen? How do we as human beings simply reckon ourselves as dead to sin? Well, enter chapter 8, and we begin to see how Paul begins talking about life in the Spirit. And he begins to establish that this kind of life, of reckoning ourselves dead to sin, of righteousness by faith in Christ alone, comes only through the empowerment of the Holy Spirit. And that if we attempt to live this Christian life apart from a desperate, abandoned hope in God to bring us the infilling of the Spirit, we're doomed from the start. And I emphasize this because I'm afraid that in many 
areas of the church today, we love to talk about all aspects of salvation and faith, but we simply sweep over the role of the Spirit. And if the role of the Spirit is emphasized or mentioned, sometimes it's seen as kind of a peripheral topic. But I tell you, that's not how Scripture speaks of the centrality of the Holy Spirit in terms of enabling us to live our lives in Christ. And so as we move on and we get towards the end of chapter 8, it's such good news that Paul is building this case of how we're empowered by the Spirit that he explains or he gives what I call a conquering promise. And we've all memorized it, chapter 8, verse 28, that God works all things out for the good of those who love Him and have been called according to His purpose. And so as we see from chapter 1, as Paul establishes the problem of sin and our only hope through Christ and how we can live a Christ-filled life by the Spirit, it is as though the message that Paul is speaking is crescendoing higher and higher and higher to such a degree that by the time we get to chapter 10 in verse 1, it is as though Paul's heart is literally breaking. It's as though he is feeling crushed in his heart because he is seeing this phenomenal offer by God to bring us close to God, to bridge the gap that no human can bridge. And yet, on the other hand, he sees the mass of humanity that knows nothing of this message. And so this is, this is the challenge that Paul is facing. This is the challenge. Paul's heart is breaking that all people, but the Jews in particular, but this is a message for all, that they would all be able to encounter this new life of faith that only comes through Christ. And as we continue on through chapter 10, Paul is simply continuing to reiterate that salvation, that righteousness only comes through believing in Jesus. And of course, we know our, our classic salvation verse, Romans chapter 10, verse 9, that if you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that Jesus is Lord and that God raised him from the dead, that you will be saved. And again, Paul continues, this crescendo is rising even as it seems as though a lament from his own soul is arising because he sees this challenge, this amazing promise, this amazing future for those who know. But yet we see here in Paul in chapter uh, 10, verse 14 and 15, Paul finally asks, how can lost humans believe if there is no one to preach the gospel? How can lost humans believe upon Jesus Christ and bridge that gap that sin has created if there is no one to preach the gospel? And how can they preach the gospel if they are not sent? So Paul is bridging this amazing message of salvation by faith in Christ, empowered by the work of the Spirit within, to missions. How will the mass of humanity know if no one can preach it? And how will they preach it if no one is sent? 
And as we get to chapter 11, it, it continues on, and Paul explains that the power of this message, the power of this faith in the Spirit is so great that it can bring such a transformation in the lives of people that it has the capacity to make others envious for this life. It is not just a proclamation that if you assent to it, then your name is checked in the golden box that we now have hope of a future of eternity in heaven. But in the here and now, Paul is saying that if we would allow this faith in Christ through the power of the Spirit to work within us, it will bring forth the fruit of such transformation. And later on, in other books, Paul describes that in terms of the fruits of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness. He goes on and on and literally establishes a visible, tangible manifestation of what this kind of life looks like. And he says it is so powerful that it has the capacity to make others envious. That when people see that, they would say, I need that. I need that. And Paul continues, you continue, it's his heart is bleeding in this, this book of Romans. And he says, oh, that the Jews would be stirred to jealousy because of this quality of divine life in believers, whether Jew or Gentile. And so this is the broad sweep that we see in the book of Romans. I understand there are many other theological streams we can get into. But it is, by and large, a book about God rescuing us from the problem of sin by one solution and one solution alone. Faith in Jesus Christ. That we might be empowered through the power of the Spirit. And so, in light of this broad sweep, we then come once again to Romans chapter 12, verse 1. It is against the backdrop of all that I have shared, the backdrop of sin, the backdrop of human hopelessness, the backdrop of salvation by faith, the backdrop of the gift of the Spirit, and the backdrop of the need for proclamation and the proclaimers to be sent. It is against this backdrop, and it is no coincidence, it is against that specific backdrop that we now enter chapter 12, verse 1. Let us look at it one more time in this light. Therefore, I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. So we see here this scripture is associating our worship as the act of consecration or offering up our bodies as not just sacrifices but living sacrifices. See, we already know that this message of worship is not new. 
See, because Paul is relating this offering up of our bodies, he says later, this is your act of worship. So it is not as though this is the first verse we read on worship. We know worship is entwined in the very spiritual DNA of ancient Israel. Called to be a holy people and a royal nation, we've got the tabernacle of Moses in the wilderness and then the, the tabernacle of David. And all throughout the Old Testament, we see this emphasis on worship. And then again, of course, it continues through the Gospels. But what we see here when Paul is sharing about this particular verse, we see that he is taking worship to a whole new level. A whole new level. Because here he's talking about a living sacrifice. The imagery is the Old Testament burnt offering that's consumed by fire. We read all about it in the book of Leviticus and and so forth, about the offering, the proper offering of a sacrifice and how it becomes a pleasing aroma to the Lord. This is the imagery that Paul is referring to. But what's different here is that the sacrifice offered isn't a one-time offering. It's not a one-time offering. It can't be, because he uses the words living sacrifice. All the other sacrifices died. That was the point. So what does Paul mean when he begins to describe this idea of worship associated with consecration as a living sacrifice? I believe there's several things that we can draw from it. And the phrase that I like to talk about is we're going to call it a lifestyle of worship. Paul is calling us to a lifestyle of worship. And I believe we can call it a lifestyle because he's talking about a living sacrifice. This is something that involves our entire lives, all that we are, all, who that we are, and how we live our lives. And so for worship to be such a holistic reality, it must involve at least three different domains. Okay? And so my message this morning is to talk with you about the consecration of these three different domains and how together they create this idea of a lifestyle of worship. And yes, in the end, I will tie it in to the notion of missions. I will tie it in to the gospel call. So let us begin here by talking about the consecration of our minds. And I believe in this one verse, we will see how Paul is talking about the consecration of our minds, the consecration of our hearts, and the consecration of our actions. And we're going to systematically walk through these three different areas and see why they are so critical to a lifestyle of worship. So we see here, Paul is saying, therefore, what? In view of God's mercy... Offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. Therefore, in view of God's mercy, offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. You see, sometimes, church, when we talk about worship, especially in the the Pentecostal charismatic movement, and we understand worship because there tends to be more of an openness to the Holy Spirit. And in this context, we often experience a heart 
that's lifted. We felt it this morning. Praise God for the gifts of worship leaders and musicians that you have here in this church. It is a blessing. It is a blessing that we are able to enter into the presence of God and literally feel an elevation of our hearts and an experience and an encounter with God. And as important and as critical as this experience is, we must understand that worship does not just involve the idea of our heart swelling with love and gratitude for God. We must understand that this is preceded by a mind, by a mind that is consecrated, that is devoted to God. Why can I say that? Because of these few words right here, in view of, in view of. This is how Paul starts the verse. You're saying, David, what are you, what are you getting at? This is what I'm getting at. True worship is preceded by understanding the magnitude of God's saving grace, understanding the magnitude of his mercy. You see, Paul, up to this point, has gone through this long theology that at its core is highlighting the mercy and grace of God to save a sinner like us. And so it is not an accident that this verse on worship begins with Paul saying, in view of. See, this is done before, and we see it all the time in the book of Psalms. Only it doesn't say in view of, it says selah. The psalmist talks about the wonder and the glory of God. And it's just, it's so amazing. It's as though we can hardly continue on because it's so incredible. This merciful God who loves us, who saved us, who's brought our feet out of the miry clay and on and on. And then there's a pause, selah, stop, think, reflect. Don't rush on to the next verse. Think about it. That is exactly what Paul is doing right here. Before he even gets to worship, before he even gets to any notion of our sense of feeling God's presence, he says, therefore, in view of, in view of God's mercy. Church, I tell you today, there is such a challenge. There is such a challenge in our society. It is so fast. We run and run and run. We have lost in so many ways. We have gotten out of touch with the discipline of solitude and the discipline of reflection. In many ways, we have forgotten how to be quiet and how to be still. In many ways, we rush into church and we want our hearts to be elevated. But Paul says, in view of stop, and think about God's mercy. Think about it. He saved a wretch like me. He saved me. I remember when I was so broken. I didn't know how I could move on. I remember that God's love for me was a tangible presence. And I've learned to take it for granted. God, thank you for your love. Thank you for your mercy. Thank you for saving me. 
in view of God's mercy, then what? Offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. This is your spiritual act of worship. It begins with a consecration of the mind. It begins with learning to pause, selah, reflect on the goodness of God and His mercy. And so I challenge us today, church, I challenge us, do we regularly take time to think and reflect on the magnitude of God's saving grace in our lives? Do we take time to do this on a daily basis? I tell you today, if we do not, it will affect our worship. It will affect our worship. We will be like the seeds that the the sower sowed that did not, they sprouted up, but because of the heat of the sun, they did not have root. We must learn to consecrate our minds and daily take time in solitude to reflect on the mercy of God. And then next we move on to the consecration of our hearts, to the consecration of our hearts. Paul here is exhorting the believer to live a life of ongoing submission to God, not sporadic, not temporary, Only a radically consuming love would compel a person to become a living sacrifice. We're talking about a life lived on the altar. God, you want me to do what? What are you saying? You want me to get on that? That blazing furnace? When we love God with all of our hearts, soul, mind, and strength, our life is but nothing. We gladly give it to Him. So only a radically consuming love for God would enable us to be capable of this thing called a living sacrifice. And so this is what God is calling us to, to a lifestyle of consecrated love. And so I believe here that Paul is asking believers to reflect on their degree of love for God. So I ask us this church this morning, and I tell you, as I ask you, I ask me, because I am preaching to myself this message this morning. Church, I ask you this morning, in view of God's mercy, if we are truly living in view of his mercy, shouldn't our lives manifest a certain degree of love for him? If we really are living in view of his mercy, shouldn't our lives reflect a certain level of love for God? Let me get a little bit more personal. Have we settled for lesser affections? Have we settled? Have we allowed our hearts to be captured by things less important than Christ. How do we know if we have? Well, we have to learn to listen to the voice of the Spirit because He brings the conviction. But I tell you, we can get a good idea by looking at our time and our money. How we spend our time and how we spend our money is often a really good indication of what's in our heart, of what's in our heart. So, We've talked about a consecrated mind and we've talked about a consecrated heart. 
And I believe that as we move from one to the other, it, it logically leads to the third, the consecration of our actions. And it's really interesting here. It was very, it's, it's laid out where Paul says, therefore, in view of God's mercy, what? Offer your bodies. Offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. Here we refer to the public and private illustration of our faith. You see, we must understand that more often than not, especially here in the United States, and I will get to this later, but it's also in Europe, more and more and more, we must understand that the proclamation of the gospel is better illustrated than just dictated. Because people tend to believe more what they see than just what they hear. People tend to believe more convincingly what they see than just what they hear. And the other thing that is interesting here, offer your bodies. A lifestyle of worship is about real bodies, not just abstract spirits, not just intangible elevated emotions and experiences. Here we're speaking of a tangible reality, one that is not just spiritualized. We're not speaking of a mere sense or awareness of God's love, but the actual living out of this reality in our day-to-day -day lives. I cannot emphasize enough how critical this is. Offer your bodies. Paul deliberately said, bodies. He didn't say, offer your good intentions. He didn't say, offer up a heartfelt encounter of love and gratitude and experience of God. He said, offer your bodies. Offer this tangible flesh and blood lump. This package that we carry around day in and day out. This thing that so many times we would rather forget about and simply spiritualize. This thing that we have to drag out of bed on Monday morning because we're tired. This thing that we drive to work and that we oftentimes through the mouth of this thing want to say things we wish we wouldn't to the driver that cuts us off, to the boss who is mean, to the coworker who's impatient, or rude. Offer your bodies. Offer your bodies. Offer your bodies as living sacrifices. There is no way to get around the reality that Paul is getting at. Our worship is not just about a heart that encounters the wonder and the glory of God as necessary as that is. And our worship is not just about learning to pause and reflect on the glory and the wonder of God's mercy, saving a wretch like me. But our worship involves the tangible reality, the tangible, practical expression of offering our bodies, offering this flesh and blood, consecrating it as imperfect as it is. God, I give you my attitude today. I give you my temper, I am struggling. God, I consecrate my actions to you.
I'm not going to excuse my failings. I'm not going to excuse my sin by spiritualizing my earthly existence. And church, I tell you today that when we begin to understand a lifestyle of worship as a holistic reality that must involve all three of these areas, our minds, our hearts, and our actions, that we place ourselves in a position of openness to receive from the fullness of God. We posture ourselves to walk spirit-filled lives because we are more fully submitted to the Lordship of Christ. It is imperative that we understand this calling to worship is a calling to a lifestyle. And this lifestyle leads to the calling of missions. So in summary of all that I've said, let me read this. A lifestyle of worship is expressed in a mind that is conscious of the scope of God's love and mercy and a heart that has deeply experienced this love and behaviors that regularly respond to God's love in how we treat those around us. This is a lifestyle of worship. So what is the missional application? When mind, heart, and actions are integrated, our lifestyle of worship becomes a visible manifestation of what a life saved by grace looks like. When we live this kind of lifestyle of worship, our lifestyle becomes a visible manifestation of what the transforming power of God's saving grace looks like in a real person. Not a fictitious character read in a book. Not in someone that someone told somebody about someone who's far away somewhere. But you and me and us as the body of Christ when we live a lifestyle of worship, we become first the visible manifestation of the proclamation that we then give. And I tell you why this is so critical. Because here in our country, here in our country, people have to see it. People are fed up with all the monkey business we see in the church world. People are fed up. Right now, I live in Kentucky in the middle of the Bible Belt. And I've taught, I've taught in community colleges, comparative religions. The majority of my class have had Christian backgrounds, and the majority have rejected it because of what they have and have not seen. But I tell you, as we live lifestyles of worship, we become a manifestation of the proclamation that we preach. And I think this is a challenge to the church because so often we are too quick and too ready to proclaim a message before we have allowed it to percolate into the very fiber of who we are. And we have not allowed ourselves to walk through our seasons of brokenness. And we have allowed ourselves to want to rush through these seasons I tell you, church, when we lost our three babies, I wanted to move past it. 
Here I am in the midst of a PhD program in theology, and I had not a single answer. I had nothing. But I learned to live on the altar because I learned that I'm desperate for him. My marriage learned it's desperate for God. And from my perspective, all I did was crawl and pray and fall down and get up again and say, God, I consecrate myself to you. Only you can bring me through this. Only you can bring me through this. And in my, from my perspective, I looked like a blubbering fool. I looked like a weakling. I looked like no example of what a Christian should be. I was broken. I had no answers. I didn't even know how to talk about it. But as I walked and continued to trust, my life became a proclamation of hope. And people became willing to listen to me because they've seen me by God's grace. They've seen Emily. They've seen our losses. How does this relate to missions in Europe? Church, today, Europe is considered by many theologians and missiologists to be the most, if not one of the most, spiritually darkest continents in the world. Europe has a heritage, a history of Christianity, but by and large, there has been so much damage done in Europe in the name of Christianity. From the Crusades all the way through the merging of Christianity and politics, where there has been abuse, lies, pillaging, and all sorts of things done in the name of Christianity that today Europeans would much more gladly distance themselves from this thing called Christianity and simply label themselves a secularist and say, I have no room for this God of yours in my life. I will learn to depend on my own strength, on my own intellect, I will be a secularist. Many people are considering this, this category of people called secularists as an actual people group in Europe. You've heard about people groups. They're usually identified with various religions, but secularism has become such a category today in Europe that missiologists are dealing with it as its own people group. And you'll understand and learn about people groups in your perspectives course. It's one of the many wonderful things you'll learn. But I'm telling you, church, why is this so critical? Because in Europe today, there is such a vacuum of hopelessness, just sucking it out of people's lives. Because when you reject God and remove him from the public sphere, you're left with hopelessness. And so, church, I encourage you today to remember Europe in your prayers Remember Europe in your prayers and that God would empower our ministry in Europe to be one that would help to empower others in the power of the Spirit to live lifestyles of worship that might draw others to Him. So I am so glad that I've had the opportunity to share with you this morning and that if there's anything I've shared and there's any more information that you would be interested in gathering from from me, I have a table in the back, and I'd be more than happy to talk more with you about that at the end of the service. So at this point, uh, Pastor Neil, I'll hand it over to you and ask you to come on up.
God bless.